we return to our bringing light into darkness discussion and regarding the relevance and importance of the potency increase in THC in marijuana over the last couple of decades. That when you smoke marijuana, we were mentioning this the other day, that the fastest delivery system to the brain is not IV use, but actually inhalation. That, mm-hmm. that that marijuana, that THC will get to your brain faster when you smoke it, inhalation within, say, eight seconds or so. So my inclination is to believe that people that are more experienced marijuana smokers, if they're smoking a marijuana joint with somebody or some other people, and it's really high potency, guess what? By the time that joint comes back around to them, if there's three or four people participating, they've already felt the effects of the first inhalation effect. Right. And if it's really, really powerful, they may say, no, no, I don't need any more or maybe a little bit more or or whatever, you know, but the fact that it's called titration, being able to kind of control what mm-hmm. high you want to get to. And, and it's not great science. It's certainly, you can maybe sometimes get higher than you want, that type of thing. But when you compare that to eating a drug, right, edibles, you know, you have a mm-hmm. marijuana cookie and you go, I don't feel anything yet. Give me another cookie. You know, right. oh, I don't feel anything yet. You know, here's four or five. You know, you go and through, then all of a sudden, boom, you feel right. too much. It's, well, yeah. <laughs> so I think some of that's overstated to say that because you have higher potency, it creates dangers. Now, it does create some dangers. I mean, to be honest, which is what we always want to do, is that higher THC potency, it creates dangers. Like, for instance, some people, when they smoke pot, they get anxiety, you know, they get anxious. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't get with your friends and say, hey, come on, let's get high. I want to get anxious. (laughs) You know, that's not a desired effect, right? And that's an effect that some people, a subset of people have. I don't think it's that great a number of people, but it is significant number of people. Mm -hmm. Then there's another type of mental health type of state that's also not desirable, that's more undesirable than the anxiety. And that would be, I would suggest, getting paranoid. Right. Getting really paranoid. So again, you don't say, come on, let's get high. I want to get paranoid. So some people have that type of experience. But Mm -hmm. the one that's been in the literature the most over the last 10 years or so and came out with alarming claims at first had to do with the potential of a marijuana induced psychosis. Okay. Mm -hmm. And a psychosis, just for those people that are not clear on that, a psychosis is a break from reality. In other words, if someone has ever done a hallucinogenic drug, they may experience hallucinations of sorts, but in their mind, they realize I took this drug Maybe they even think, I wish I hadn't, but I have, and now I got to deal with it. You know, they know it's not right. the real deal. And with psychosis, you believe that that is your reality and everyone else. That's right. That's exactly the difference. And so like a schizophrenic person, when they're talking to somebody that's not there, actually they are there in their world. We just don't see them, that type of thing. Now, the question became, at first they were saying that really high THC potency can create psychoses. And when you really break it down from the science, this is one of those uncertainty areas. Let's just say that. Mm -hmm. But there are four or five factors that interrelate that create a probability of a THC-induced psychotic episode that's either higher or lower. So nothing guarantees that anyone's going to have a psychosis or not. But if all of these things are present, the chances are higher than if none of them are or if four of them are. But but the number one... There is a significant correlation. Right. Well, Well, there's like five different interrelated factors. Let me run through them real quick. 
One has mm-hmm. to do with the high THC that we were just saying. If it's really super, super high, what they sometimes call skunk weed type of thing. The second factor has to do with CBD. CBD has anti-psychotic properties. So if it's mm-hmm. super, super low in CBD and super, super high in THC, now you're starting to create a more perfect storm for the possibility of generating a psychotic episode, right? And if you're super young, in other words, an adolescent brain, your brain, we said that it's not fully matured until about age 21. So if you're smoking marijuana that's very high in THC, and, and if you're super young, 16 or 17 or 18, and it's very, very low in CBD, those are three factors. Another has to do with the frequency and quantity, you know, how often and how much of this skunkweed are you smoking? And the lastly, uh-huh. probably the most important dominant factor out of the five is just family history. If my mother was schizophrenic, for instance, or I had family history of schizophrenia, <laughs> and then I was smoking pot that was really high in THC, really low in CBD, I smoked a lot, uh-huh. and I smoked frequently, and I was a very young person. All those things creates the greatest probability. It doesn't mean I would develop a psychosis, but that is what the science is saying are the factors that create together the highest probability of a psychotic episode from THC. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, thank you. So psychosis, given those five factors, can be a long-term mental health factor that you should pay attention to if you are a marijuana user. But is there anything else? You mentioned also anxiety. Has there been any indication that it causes long-term anxiety, or is it just post-smoking or taking an edible? Yeah, I'm not real fluent in the the science in that area, to be honest. I think, number one, the issue with anxiety, one, was there anxiety before Mm -hmm. the initiation of the chemical use? That would be something that may or may not be the case. But no, it can create anxiety some people mm-hmm. have different responses to the same drug. Exactly. So, and some people will say, well, hey, it helps my anxiety. Well, it may be doing both, you know, maybe aggravating it and helping it, you know, and then when you're not using it, it gets more aggravated. I mean, it's hard to really say. Okay. I mean, I, you can get my inclination as I tend to gravitate towards promoting being chemical free rather than trying to use a chemical to address an issue. But as we know, having an anxiety problems is a real mental health issue, and there are appropriate medications. The only question we've brought up in the past is, do they overprescribe it because they want to make right. money? <laughs> you know, like any exactly. other market. You know, I, mean, I really think this stuff should be completely outside of the commercial realm and totally in a health realm so that right. these decisions would not be driven by anything but the best outcomes for the patient. Right, rather than marketing. Yeah. So we mentioned the mental health factors, but I also want to bring up our physical, biological body and how marijuana, because usually the the traditional way is digesting marijuana through smoke, and Mm -hmm. it's also an easier way to get high. So we know for a fact that carcinogens are in cigarettes, but are they in marijuana? And does digesting marijuana through smoke um, affect your lungs? Yeah. Well, first off, your lungs were not made for combustibles. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) everyone knows what that is. Anytime you light anything up and you're inhaling it, you are insulting your lungs. Now, 
one thing we haven't talked a whole lot about, and I think it's really important to have a balanced discussion, is that one of the beauties of the human brain and body, and, and this is why we call it the magical human brain and body, and not drugs, but the human brain and body, is that we are incredibly resilient. The human brain and body and can right. bounce back. We seek to rebalance. We seek to counter insult with homeostasis, homeostatically trying to get back and balance. But your lungs, they are definitely not made for smoking. Now, we know with tobacco that there's a clear indications that cancer is caused. We know that it's a terrible, terrible habit. It kills over 400,000 people a year. Many people buy these types of lung diseases that people are aware of. Like, for instance, you probably heard of emphysema. That's a terrible lung right. disease. That's not a... Emphysema is not one of these reversible health conditions, right? Mm -hmm. Generally, when you have emphysema, it's going one way and it's going the wrong way. And so when you talk about marijuana and tobacco, what's interesting is that marijuana smoke, it has actually 50% more benzopyrene and nearly 75% more benzanthracene which are both known to be carcinogens than a comparable amount of unfiltered tobacco smoke. Oh, okay? wow. Now, we smoke marijuana differently than cigarettes. You don't inhale nicotine and hold your breath for, you know, three seconds or whatever the deal is. Right. right? And by the mode in which we ingest cigarette smoke versus marijuana smoke, marijuana smoke is actually deposit close to four times more tar in the lungs than smoking an equivalent amount of tobacco. And this information is coming from this guy, Donald Tashkin. He's at UCLA. He's done all of these, not, not just studies, but mega studies um, where they compare all of these different studies. So he speaks with great empiricism when he announces these types of statistics. But what's interesting is that even though marijuana has higher rates and significantly higher rates of two known carcinogens, it's interesting that when you look at neck, throat, and lung cancers, marijuana has not been associated with creating cancer. So how can that be? How can you have something that has way more carcinogens, at least two, right, yet not cause cancer? And so nobody really knows. This is kind of uncertainty, too. Maybe it's because of some of the medicinal anti-tumeric effects that the CBD has and and some of the mm -hmm. THC has stuff. That, maybe so. Who knows? But to suggest that there are not carcinogens, there's a bunch of chemicals in the marijuana smoke. The other thing that's worth mentioning about marijuana and tobacco, when you look at them, the way your lungs are set up, right? You breathe in down your trach, what it's called, right? From your mouth mm -hmm. down into your lungs, and then your bronchioles, there's one branch goes off to one lung, one goes to the other lung. Okay, you following mm -hmm. me so far? Okay, and then into your lungs, as you get farther and deeper into your lungs, eventually you engage at the very last at the what's called the alveoli. They are these small, like, grape-looking things, and that's where the oxygen and the blood supply interface, okay? Mm -hmm. And this is where the real damage is done with nicotine, way down at the bottom. This is the emphysema type stuff, the chronic obstructive pulmonary disease stuff, which is not associated with marijuana, unless you're smoking with cigarettes too. But getting back to the steel, the real damage that marijuana creates is the upper part of the respiratory tract, the bronchial. You get bronchitis. 
it's clearly mm -hmm. causes bronchitis, which is not good. Now, it is interesting that if you stop smoking marijuana, completely abstain, if you're having any bronchial problems with the bronchitis side of things, they largely just dissipate over time. So it's reversible in that regard. But clearly, the marijuana smoke and tobacco smoke, they harm the lungs, but in different places and in different ways with the marijuana smoke affecting mainly the larger pathways. While tobacco, unlike marijuana, can create irreversible lung disease in the form of cancer, emphysema, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, as we described. Right. Interesting. So I know that we mentioned what marijuana does to the brain, what it does to the lungs, and what kind of drug category it is. And now I kind of want to talk about which is the theme of the show, chemical use and misuse. Mm -hmm. Can there be an addiction to cannabis? Um, and it, has it been defined in the DSM? Has it been mentioned in research? Can you speak to that a bit and whether it can be an addiction? Yeah, sure. Um, so first, let me back up because we haven't really talked as much as we should about marijuana's impact on the brain. Mm -hmm. One of the things, the most sacred part of your brain, I believe, well, I don't know if it's the most sacred part, but it's an important <laughs> part. It's the reward center. It's how you feel and experience pleasure. When right. you're with your good friends and enjoying your company, you know, your brain is firing off in the reward center. There's no drugs. That's an internal brain ecology type of thing. Right. When, you, when you're hearing the music that you love, when you're doing things that you like doing, when you complete a task and you did a good job at work or whatever that might be. That good feeling comes from that pleasure pathway. And I would just suggest my study of marijuana is that marijuana, you're not going to die from smoking marijuana. And I would go further. I, I would say there are dangers, though, with people that are regular marijuana smokers. And I mean people that are smoking day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out for many, many years. It just pounds away at the pleasure center, that pleasure pathway, okay? And over, right. over time, what happens is things that I used to really enjoy doing, I enjoy them, but not in the same degree. It's kind of chipped away at my pleasure pathway in a certain sense. So it's almost like it might even explain why some people just to take the trash out need to get high first to get motivated to take the trash right. out or whatever. Or you hear people that are so brilliant, brilliant people that do all types of drugs for that matter, but they, they can come up with these great ideas. We're going to do this, we're going to do that. And they come up with a great creativity, you know, and then we're going to do this, that, that, and now go the lights. We're going to kill it. But when it comes to executing the plan from step one to step finish. In real life, it seems like they have trouble getting off of step one to step two to step three. It seems like just can't get anything finished. That's what I would call the productive potentiality that we all have. And I don't think there's any greater loss in life than to be sitting there on your deathbed and thinking, man, I, I, I could have gotten a lot more done or whatever, <laughs> that type of thing. I mean, no one's going to ever reach their potentiality in life. That's just not the way it works. But some of us right. really get a lot closer, I would suggest, and are a lot more productive. So that's really something. That's why the chemical dependency issue, when you think of like alcoholism or other chemical dependencies with marijuana, they're different in that they're not physically, the debilitating side might not emanate itself like it does with other drugs. But again, when you have a, a compulsion 
an overwhelming urge to use or when you feel like we were defining addiction the other day and people can go back and listen to that module in that radio segment. Mm -hmm. But one of the things we talked about, and I think this is what makes marijuana potentially a very uh, addictive substance, not a physically addictive, although there is a physical withdrawal, but not a life-threatening withdrawal. But I'm talking about psychological dependency. I feel like I have mm-hmm. to have it. You know, you talk to people that smoke marijuana and those that have gotten off of it, they'll, they'll tell you it was one of the hardest drugs to get off of, this marijuana. Right. But what I'm trying to get at is this continued use despite adverse consequences. We talked about it the other day that if you have a relationship with a drug that is self-injurious, and I think the example we gave, and I'll give it again since we're talking about marijuana specifically, Mm -hmm. is let's say I was married and had two kids, and I have a lot of things in my life that I really value and I really enjoy doing. I got friends. I like my work. I like different hobbies. But at the end of the day, my top shelf value is my wife and kids, okay? And if my wife said, look, if you don't stop smoking pot, I'm out of here with the kids. And I go, oh, you know, you're my world. No no problem. I'll stop in a heartbeat because that's how important my wife is to me, right? Well, Mm -hmm. I, I have that total commitment. But then within three or four days, I'm out with my best friend and we're in the garage by the side of the house and I'm smoking pot with him and working on the car and making sure my wife's not looking. You know, I'm putting at risk everything that's most important to me. That's self-injurious. You never self-injure yourself unless you're a victim of some type of disease of sort. In other words, you never choose to hurt yourself volitionally unless you're suffering from a disease. So anyhow, that is a very quick overview of, I think, the psychological dependency theory of addiction and marijuana get people to think about a little bit. Yeah. No, thank you for that. And really quickly, one more question before we end things. Has it been mentioned at all in the DSM? cannabis use, or is this mostly just independent research? Yeah, no, absolutely. The DSM-5 has discarded the language of alcoholism, largely due to the culturally generated stigma associated with the term alcoholism. But I believe it comes at a cost to better defining what defines addiction to the layperson. In fact, addiction and addictive disorders has largely been removed from the lexicon of the DSM. They do not even use the term chemical dependency, which I do feel is really an important term because it helps lay people to understand what this disorder is. In fact, we discussed the evolution of the DSM through its seven different evolutionary manifestations in defining the addictive disorder from the original 1952 DSM-1 to the most current DSM-5 published in 2013, some 61 years later. The most current DSM-5 instead now uses the term substance use disorder, abbreviated SUD, to describe all chemical dependencies, which within the DSM-5 now encompasses some 10 classes of potential drugs of abuse. So, no matter what the drug dependency may be, including alcoholism, which is now included under the umbrella term alcohol use disorder, They use the language substance use disorder, SUD, and they define SUDs as a problematic pattern of use leading to clinically significant impairment or distress as manifested by at least two of 11 criteria that they list occurring within the last 12 months, 
these criteria that the DSM-5 lists fall into four categories of symptom groupings, if you will, that they define as one, impaired control, two, social impairment, three, risky use symptoms, and four, pharmacological criteria such as withdrawal and tolerance. So to your question, yes, the DSM specifically refers to a quote-unquote cannabis use disorder, and our hallmark signs that we identified in a previous show in this series is completely consistent with their clinical language. So what I am sharing with you from my clinical history of experience and research of being licensed and working in this field in the past, what, 35, 36 years is consistent with the DSM-5. I just don't and I never have found the DSM to be as useful as our chemical use misuse continuum, the patented assessment invention we highlighted earlier in this series of shows. As we discussed, the chemical use misuse continuum is a decision tree driven system that assimilates all negative signs and symptoms, behavioral, social, and physical that I may have had with a potential drug of abuse such as alcohol or otherwise, and it quantifies them accordingly into a specific placement along a chemical use misuse continuum which is the assessment invention we successfully got patented back in 2003, some 12 years ahead of the DSM-5 publication we are presently discussing. It is remarkable, I think, that our independent research got us to a place, namely the chemical use misuse continuum invention model, a dozen years before the DSM-5 reached a similar evolution to a graded severity continuum encompassing 2 to 11 criteria that they published in 2013 with the DSM-5. So absolutely, we do have the same conceptual language. The DSM calls it cannabis use disorder, CUD are the initials, and you can have mild, moderate, and severe CUD based on the number of criteria that you are positive for out of the list of 11 criteria experienced within the past year. And these signs all fall within the three or four hallmark signs we detailed during our explanation of our chemical dependency model we shared on an earlier show. So I hope this helps explain the disorder and the methodology of diagnosing it. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for that um, and all the information, especially because things are changing around marijuana laws are constantly changing, as we mentioned earlier. And it's important, I think, to also talk through the consequences because often we view cannabis as something like not bad, not good, you know, just there. Um, So it's Mm -hmm. good to speak to what marijuana can do both to your brain, your body. So thank you for that. Yeah, and and just as a last note, to be clear, when we're talking about cannabis use disorders, those are not people that are smoking marijuana once a month or a month type of thing. What what we were talking about was regular, daily marijuana use can generate this type of profile. Not that I'm recommending people smoke marijuana, but I do think they're, you know, like with most all drugs, based on their profile, questions can arise as whether there are or are not moderate uses that are acceptable. We, we clearly indicated that K2, no. Exactly. You know, and, there's, and there's a number of other drugs, uh, the solvents and that are very, very damaging. And PCP that come to mind that are drugs that really shouldn't be experimented with due to their profile of effects that can create 
brain changes that may be damaging or irreversible. Another one we mentioned LSD for another reason, namely how incredibly powerful it is being measured in millionths of grams, yet creates such powerful brain changes over extended periods of time. But then there's other drugs that don't carry that same profile, but certainly people are liable to develop addictive disorders with them if, if they engage with them too long and too often. Great. Yeah. So thank you again for all this information and the discussion. This is, once again, this mini-series is titled Our Addictive Culture, Chemical Use and Misuse, and the Magical Host, the Human Brain and Body. And we will be talking more next week, right? Yes, we're going to continue the series. I'm not so sure we'll jump into it next week, but this series will be available on our website that we'll eventually announce. (laughs) But listen, I want to thank you, Pat, for navigating us through this very important discussion, and we'll look forward to seeing everybody next week. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, and if you have questions, please, you can email pgatos00 at gmail.com, pgatos00 at gmail.com, and we appreciate your listening to the show each week. Thanks again, Pat. Thanks. And we'll see you next week. Don't be late. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on koop.org right now. Switch on over to the internet. If you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety. Check out the bozo.